Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today with me, I have a special guest. She is a mom, a wife, and a fundraiser. Uh, welcome, Anna Heeman. How are you today? I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I am very excited to have you. So I'm going to start by asking you what I ask all of my guests, and that is, what is your labor of love? So I would say my labor of love is being very open and vocal as part of the uh, discussion and discourse around adoption. Um, I'm an adopted person myself, as is my brother. And my husband and I, last year, we adopted our daughter, Ruby, um, who is amazing. And um, we specifically now are um, sort of, we I don't, I don't know if make ourselves available is the right word, but we are very open. There's a lot of misconceptions about adoptions or questions or, you know, that whole idea. Um, and so we try to be as approachable as possible for folks that want to learn more. Awesome. So that really begins the opportunity for me to even kind of talk a little bit about how we got connected in this way. So we we have a little bit of history, though it's not in depth. So I can't even remember when I first met you, but I can definitely tell you it was probably around 2008 or before <laughs> because um, I used to a good one of my best friends, Lindsay, and I, um, along with a group of people we worked with, would always hang out in Main Strauss um, at mm-hmm. the pub. And so this was like every single Thursday, we were down in Main Strauss throwing darts, having drinks after we got off work. And uh, Lindsay's then boyfriend, now husband, um, is a bartender there. And so even when it was just her and I, we would hang out there. And I met you way back then. Um, I remember you came and you know she was just like oh you and Lindsay were friends and we met and I'm sure we probably talked in some fashion right but never really connected like anything around work or anything like that and then was it time is so elusive so maybe two years ago is it when David moved um Weaver so I think that was two years ago right he they there was a roast for him That's right. And I remember that you were one of the people who were presenting and I was just there because, you know, I really love David and I had met him through some work, but I was surrounded by public allies. And (laughs) so much to the point that I think some people thought I was a public ally, um, which I didn't even know public allies were until probably close to that meeting, you know, even though I have a lot of friends who were there. So you were there. So we've crossed paths multiple times, but what really started this connection and made me realize you would be an, an amazing guest on the podcast is um, I was on Facebook 
a while ago. Time is elusive, especially in time of like COVID, but I'm pretty sure we were probably quarantined. Maybe, maybe not. And I was scrolling through Facebook and you had posted a meme or like a cartoon of sorts. And it was uh, a little girl next to a woman sitting, I think on a couch, you would assume that they were mother and daughter. And I believe the little girl said, mommy, am I adopted? And the mom said, not yet. I just filed the paperwork yesterday or something to that effect. And the interesting thing is when I read the meme, I laughed. We were in quarantine because it was something in relation to kind of like life in quarantine towards the beginning, homeschooling. I have three kids. Um, and I remember laughing at the meme like, oh, yeah, like a little chuckle. And then I your what I read your your post about it, which is adoption isn't funny. And you went on to talk about how it's not about getting rid of bad kids and how, and just this whole thing that was like, for me, whoa, okay. So it made me take a pause and I had to do some evaluation within myself. And this moment um, has been very pivotal for me as I move forward in a lot of my work with trauma, a lot of my work with racial equity and talking about the various forms of oppression that are at play in this country. And it was a moment where my privilege was highlighted extremely just to me though. Like no one was sitting with me. I could have just kept moving. I recognized that there was a part of me that wanted to rationalize. Well, I didn't, no, no, it's not fun. That's not how I meant it. No, not like, that's not it. It it, did, I wanted to make excuses. There was a part of me that wanted to, but there was also a part of me that understood, ah, that's it. I get it. The first thing that rises up is a defensiveness and a need to kind of protect myself, how I I could have gone into the narrative, but I'm a good person, right? <laughs> and I realized, mm -mm, no, I don't get to do that. What I get to do is I get to read this and I get to say, this was offensive to someone and that I am complicit in jokes like these because I've never had to sit with anything that has to do with adoption or fostering or infertility or any of these issues that that my laughter could have played upon. And so it was a really, really big moment for me as a person, as an individual, to one, have empathy with people who have privilege and are part of the dominant narrative to say, man, yeah, though that defensiveness does rise up without my permission very quickly. But I also got to do what I help encourage and actually am demanding other people to do, which is sit with your privilege and humble yourself and realize that I can make a difference. One, by changing how I think and my perspective, never again will I find something about adoption or fostering or anything like that funny and humorous because it helped me realize that there are other people on the other side of that. But it, again, it just helped me to realize that there are areas in my life that I still need a lot of work on. And just because I didn't quote unquote know or understand doesn't let me off the hook. So for that, Anna, I want to say thank you um, for your, you know, for posting that and for having the commentary around it and for really having kind of one of these very life shifting um, moments for me in my life. And so I reached out to you just to tell you thank you and that it had impacted me in this way. And we got to talking. So that is kind of how we got here. So 
just talk to us for a while about anything that came up as I was talking about my experience with the meme or cartoon that you posted. And just tell us a little bit about, you know, how this became a labor of love for you. Uh, of course. And, and yeah, you're absolutely, you're, you're welcome. And thank you for being so open to the sort of other side of, you know, the, this sort of conversation and this, this, um, you know, again, it, it's hard because I think that we want to, you know, it, it was posted, like you said, during the coronavirus and the, there was a lot of parents that were homeschooling and had kids home a lot. And so it was this, the, the joke was that, you know, your kids have been around a lot and you're, kind of starting to crack a little bit as, you know, parents are, which is of course completely valid. And I think that, um, something around adoption is what I, what, what it bothers me is, you know, in my family, because we're so open about it, we do make light of, we don't, we don't take adoption too seriously. We do make jokes in the sense of, about, you know, our family, we make light of the fact that we don't necessarily look the same or we, you know, and I'm talking about in my family growing up, you know, we, we make it something that the the more you talk about something, the less there is an opportunity to have shame around it, which I think is with adoption, something that is my real uh, sort of issue. You know, you, it isn't something to be ashamed of. It isn't something shameful to be hidden. And it isn't something where we're purporting this stereotype that adopted children, no matter at what age they, you know, adoption occurs that they are unwanted or bad children or unloved. Um, and that is, so for example, you know, people, when they say a lot of times when people talk about placing a child for adoption, they'll say, well, she gave away a child. She gave up her baby. She, you know, first of all, it puts this very, I think, uh, sort of complicated and, and, and unfair, burden this this woman this terrible person just didn't care about this she gave it away like you'd give away something you didn't want anymore that you didn't care about and the truth is birth mothers care very much for their children so much so that they think about the life that they want for their child they or, or the, or the, the circumstance that they're able to, able or not able to provide. And of course there are instances where, where women, uh, abandon children or, you know, have, there are complicated issues around adoption, but this idea that that is the, the sort of, you know, that narrative is I think harmful. So, you know, we all are on social media and of course nobody wants to be that person that's, triggered by everything. And there's all this virtue signaling around, you know, you're a snowflake and you shouldn't be so offended by things. But the truth is the only way that you can break some of these, you know, thought patterns in folks that don't have the personal experience is by saying, wait a minute, this, this isn't okay. And I think that one positive thing about the world right now is we're seeing a lot of that in the discussion around social justice and racial equity by saying these little things that you say or, or that you think or, or your, your go-to that they're not, they're not okay. It's not accurate. And I think that this is sort of, when I say that that's kind of my labor of love is this kind of being the, the squeaky wheel when it comes to the adoption discussion, it's, you know, the way that, and I, I, I pulled up the, the meme that you were, that you were referencing, um, LaShonda and I, you know, what I had said was, you know, 
adoption isn't a joke and my family isn't a joke. You know, this is um, the way that, you know, love makes our family. Um, Now that I'm an adopted mother, adoptive mother, and not only adopted person, I'm, you know, I'm sort of um, feel very mama bear protective (laughs) of the, the language and the messages my daughter receives um, or will receive as she gets a little bit older. She's a little young right now, but, um, and so I think that having people like you say, you know, and, and several of my friends reached out and said, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with this either, but I see now knowing your family, knowing your situation, how this is, uh, could is offensive, is hurtful. And it's so refreshing and it's so affirming to have people appreciate just like you had so kindly said, you know, appreciate being offered this, you know, different perspective into the conversation. Um, and that's really, uh, makes me feel good, but also makes me feel like I'm doing some small part, you know, to kind of maybe ease the burden and send a ripple out, you know, that other people can educate their friends and family, maybe. Absolutely. I mean, I really do believe that it it is a ripple effect, right? And what this did was it gave me some modicum of hope for the work that I do in other areas, right? Mm-hmm. That there, there can be something that is said. Because I'm not, I, mean, I can't be completely honest. There are times when I get so discouraged by uh, social media discourse. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Nobody, nobody changing their mind about stuff you post <laughs> on social media. Like, you know, right. y'all be into these deep discussions and da, 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 you know, and, and I can be very discouraged. And, you know, for people who follow the podcast, and I talk about like <laughs> dart and inner children. Like that's my teenager. My teenager is like, yeah, shut up. Like ain't nobody <laughs> listening to that. You know, ain't nobody, da, 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 right. Right. But then when I read that and I was able to have a very serious moment with myself of like, okay, okay, there's work to be done. I Here's something I did not know, you know, and, and I also was able to do, what I encourage other people to do. Cause that's what I say. I don't ask anybody to do anything clinically in my trainings or mm-hmm. personally that I either have not done or I'm not willing to do myself. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I encourage people to do when we're talking about issues of social justice specifically is spend less of your energy on the shame of, I didn't know. And Oh my God, what have I done in the past? And blah, blah, blah. And spending all that energy into how, you know, how have I done this in the past and saying, let's acknowledge that. Let's let's take ownership for it and let's put our energy into how do I do better now and going forward. And so I did have a moment when I thought about how proximate I am to many people who um, have played a role um, in the adoption system, whether they work in adoptions or whether they have been adopted themselves or adopted children or foster children or any of that. And so um I did. I acknowledged that. But I said, let me put forth this energy and effort into changing my perspective and how I interpersonally engage. And then how do I use the platform I have to to put this on a bigger scale? And that and that's what I'm hoping that this podcast is doing today. Um, you said a number of things, Anna, that I would love to touch on a little bit um, and then have you know some other questions for you. But I would love to spend just a little bit of time talking about the shame aspect that that resonated very um, deeply for me when you talked about kind of the shame of adoption, but how understanding how shame imprints us. And when we talk about developmental and relational trauma, shame plays a huge role in that just in general. So let's just spend a little time talking about that when you were specifically 
um, kind of talking about how shame can impact a person who is adopted. Is this also, I'm assuming the person when I, I also believe maybe the parent or the, the parents that um, put the child up for adoption, but is it also a component of the the members of the family who are adopting the child? Just talk a little bit about how that could and does manifest. Yeah. So I definitely think that there's, I think this is something that as generations go on, it, it the situation improves. Things are brought into the light. Think, you know, this situation, this conversation is the, the, in, in back, even when I, I'm 39 and when I was adopted in the state of Kentucky, the adoption was closed, which, you know, that was done for many reasons. Um, and there is, it's a very complicated process by which I would find my birth parents, which is another, you know, kind of a whole thing, but which I have not ever chosen to do, nor has my sibling. But, you know, the, the thing to me is that, the idea that this is something that is secret, that you're not a real family, that, you know, you are, again, unwanted because, you know, you, your your birth mother gave you away. Um, I think all of those things are, it's sort of interesting because the focus is not on the fact that you were so wanted by the family that, you know, you became your, who became your parents, that they wanted a child, they wanted to raise you, you're their child. You know, I think that that is something that isn't, it's an unfortunate sort of focus. But, and the other thing is, again, like this idea that birth mothers throw away their children, don't care, don't want them is just horribly unfair for the, really what is an incredible sacrifice that they make, or even if, you know, I don't know if sacrifice is right, where the incredible labor of love. So to your, to use that beautiful language, kind of that, that they are saying, this is something that is bigger than me, that I want to make sure that I love this child so much that they have this, you know, life that is something I'm not able to provide. So I think that as long, when you, when you bring, again, bring these discussions out, I don't remember a time and don't literally cannot remember a time not knowing that I wasn't like, I I knew I was adopted from the very first moment. And my parents did that intentionally because they always thought that if I ever found out too late, quote unquote, that they would think that I would think that they were hiding it. You know, I mean, because, you know, and my dad has told me, you know, he had a good friend growing up. Everyone knew this kid was adopted and his parents never told him. They just, it was, that was the time that was, they didn't tell them even though, you know, how do you, you know, it's just so, I so odd now to think about, but this idea that, um, and there is some, you know, thinking as an adopted child, like, oh, I bet my parents wanted to, you know, have their own kids or, you know, even you do it to yourself as an adopted person. Sometimes you go through these stages or, or they really wanted to, they didn't want me, they want it, you know, but it's, it really, um, is one of these things where as you, as you grow up and you work through it and, and hopefully, if the process is done properly, the adoption is a good fit and it's healthy for all parties involved and there's support, you know, um, but you know, you realize that it's nothing to be ashamed about the way that we build, you build a family, whether that's friends or, you know, grandparents raising a child or just, you know, the, the people you consider your family, there's no shame in how you want to do that. And I think that that is something that is the biggest gift adoption has ever given me is that I truly believe love makes a family and that there is no shame in that. And when you have that perspective, 
that feeling g- goes away, that w- kind of washes away. But it's something a lot of adoptive people struggle with. Um, and there's, you know, I don't want to get too like technical, all kinds of studies about, you know, um, this inability to connect and there's these, and it's, it's so unfair because every adopted person is different, but that's why the language matters. That's why the way we talk about adoption matters and bringing it out of the open matters because you want to make sure that, that shame does not have to be this intrinsic part of an adopted person's life. Yes, that was so, thank you for all of those aspects that you brought up. Um, As you were talking, I was thinking of how I've, I know people and am in relationship with people who have been in various uh, points on the spectrum of uh, some not finding out they were adopted until they were adults Mm -hmm. and kind of the impact that I, I saw that have on them. Um, Some knowing, but not telling their children Right. So mm-hmm. the adopted person knowing that they were adopted, but not sharing that with their children and their children finding out when they were adults and just the the kind of jolt that that had to the family. Um, and then people I know who have been adopted and have known from the very moment. Right. And mm-hmm. so an entire family of adopted children who they all knew and it was talked about, it was openly discussed and, and that's it. I think one of the biggest things, whether we're talking about adoption or sexual abuse or any other kind of experience that brings about shame is not talking about it gives it more power. Mm -hmm. I mean, essentially that's what it is. Shame grows in darkness like a fungus. And the more darkness that is kept there, the more it grows and grows. But as light gets shined on these things, it has less and less power. Sometimes the thought of someone finding out something that you consider shameful is so frightening. It, it, it's worse than when people actually do because we build these stories up in our minds. And so, yes, I think having the discussion about it and talking about it helps. But exactly what you said, language absolutely matters. And how we, we society, are talking about and framing adoption really impacts the people who are going through the process, no matter what side they're on. Is it this stigmatized thing that's full of shame and things we have to keep a secret? Or are these things that can be talked about and openly discussed? And I think that definitely impacts how people engage with it. Um, Another kind of mm, subset of this conversation I would love to talk about, because as my practice my clinical practice is growing. Um, I work with multi-generational families and a, a subset of working with families that I find coming to me more often are uh, transracial adoption or families who have adopted children who are not the same race as them, essentially. So I personally work with a lot of white families who have uh, fostered and or adopted children of color. And being able to help families understand just how trauma period impacts just uh, rather the racial trauma of living in the culture and the society and the country that we do, as well as sometimes the situations behind the adoption may have, the child may have been uh, in a situation where they experienced trauma, but that matters. And so can you talk to us a little bit about how that does or does not impact your family 
having um, adopted a child of a different race? Sure. Um, so yeah, as you said, our daughter Ruby, she's um, black, and we uh, definitely feel um, a, a, definitely a responsibility that you know this idea that we'll, oh, we 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 don't see color. We're gonna re, we're just gonna raise her color, you know, colorblind. That is not the course we are taking. We are committed to advocating for her in every possible way, whether that's around issues of social justice and, and racial equity or, and, or I should say, making sure that she feels a connection to black culture um, that has manifested in everything from where and how are we going to have her hair done? And what does that look like to making sure that she's taught the full and real history of, uh, not just from a, a white perspective to the hardest thing probably has been continuing to realize that we are checking our privilege around these, these discussions, not only of being white, but that her experience as a black child in a predominantly white area and white family will be something that we will, we are responsible for, but also that um, we won't ever fully understand um, and that's hard because you just want to be able to protect your child and to, you know, know, and for them to know that you, you know, get what they're going through, you know, like you've been there, but in some ways we, my husband and I both, that we, we won't be able to really say that. Um, but it is something where I'm, I'm part of several groups, um, online, you know, which the internet can be a great resource in a lot of ways. I know it's maddening sometimes, but the truth is, you know, it has been helpful um, because what we have seen in some of these groups that I'm part of through Facebook is when you try to raise a, a child of color and as a white person, and you want to think that, you know, I'm sorry, I'm trying to like articulate this properly. Um, that you that basically that there are so much that there are so many folks that think that that even that arrangement isn't appropriate or isn't healthy and the truth is you know when we were adopting um we of course were open and we thought we felt that we had the right um friend group we had the right resources we had the right mindset that we would be able to give Ruby everything that she needed. Um, and you want to defend your family when people say like, well, you need to check your privilege and you need to make sure, you know, cause you want to say, well, I'm, I'm just trying to my best. I'm just doing my, you know, and it's really, really hard. Cause like you were saying when we were opening this um, podcast, Lashana, you know, you go to this defensive place, like mm-hmm. I'm just doing the best I can. I just, you know, I'm love make my, make my family. I wanted to just, you know, be, I wanted you know, you get all these like kind of Matt, you know, thoughts. And it's like, I think that really what has been helpful is for me to be able to say, you know, I, you know, reach out and say, I need some help. I need to be able to have my child be around other children of color. Of course, not right now during a pandemic, but you know, what is it, what does she need? It isn't about me. It's about what does Ruby need? And, um, it's been an education every day. It's a kind of a humbling experience, but I, I also feel like, um, you know, as you're saying, you're working with more families again, this awareness 
around that it is a difficult conversation. It is a, it is something that needs to be paid attention to. You can't just sweep it under the rug or try to be hush hush about it. It's like, no, I, I, I need some help. I need to be able to, you know, get some support around this. And it's, I, you know, I would, I was talking to you about, I would love to have like even a group, you know, of not even transracially adopted families, although that's great, you know, but just getting, you know, some, some help and support, I think is so, is so key. Uh, and unless we are able to just say, we don't know, we don't know, you know, um, it, it, it's, that's just so key to the whole, that whole dynamic of being part of a transracial adoption for sure. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is just how much things overlap, right? So some things are a direct result or impacted directly by transracial adoption. Some things are just parenting. Okay. Right. Parenting (laughs) is just hard. And and, and part of me, it's like sometimes what I say this all the time, our brain reaches for the most convenient narrative it can find. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that convenient narrative is the one that's in the closest, right? The closest in proximity to what's happening. Mm -hmm. Oh, this thing happened. So this must be the result of this. Sometimes the most convenient narrative is the one that is said the most often. And so some things that I would imagine you're going through with Ruby, no matter whether or not your brain wants to, uh, you know, automatically reach for the narrative that says, oh my goodness, you know, Ruby's a little black girl. We don't get it. Sometimes it's just parenting girl. I don't get it. (laughs) Three kids don't get it. And, And it's like, what is happening? So it is so, what I find about this to be complex are the very same things I find to be complex about human nature. And I've seen some really beautiful things happen. I've seen some really awful things happen. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen multiple sides of different things. So I or earlier, a few months ago, I, I did a, like, I think we met for like four weeks and we did a talk around little fires everywhere mm-hmm. show on Hulu. And there was a, there was a kind of one of their plot points was transracial adoption um, and going, you know, kind of exploring this narrative of the mother who quote unquote gave up her baby, uh-huh. but in, in the, in how people think about or make up a story about that person, but then you can see what she was going through versus the white family that was going to take this Chinese baby. I think she was Chinese. Uh-huh. Um, and, and just this whole thing. So that was one thing. And then I started watching this is us. Um, and there was this kind of really, I think beautifully done moment because, you know, there is this family and they adopted a child who he's black. The family is white. Uh-huh. And um, there was a pool scene yep. where um, you, so you've seen it, the pool scene where yep. the boy, you know, he really wants to go to this particular pool and he hasn't really said why he just wants to go to this pool. And then they can't find him. He's there playing, you know, with, with a group of black kids. Uh-huh. And it's like, Oh, is this why you wanted to come? And it's kind of the nonverbals, right? So, so much of what wasn't being said in, in this scene in the beginning was the face of the mom who found her son over there. And she's feeling I'm assuming judged and wait, you did just this whole beautiful moment mm-hmm. of come over here. Oh, he's fine to stay. No, he needs to be with us. And then the the black woman who was over there saying, you know, you need to get him someone to do his hair different. Those are razor bumps and, and kind of the automatic defensive nature. But at the end of this, you know, the mom came over to this woman and said, can you give me a recommendation for a barber? You know, and it's like, 
Yeah. And then it led into, hey, can he hang out with your kids? So I, I really liked it. And then I haven't gotten very far, but I've seen even how that's a repeat character, right? Yeah. How this black child within this white family then had other black kids to play with. I thought it was beautifully done because it could kind of just give you both Little Fires and This Is Us. It's not just black and white, plain and simple. I've encountered some people who have adopted black children and they've been shopping and other black people have kind of come up to them and made statements like our baby's this, right? Kind of this narrative of he's ours, he's not yours. Mm-hmm. And it had the impact of how that impacted that mother. But I've also seen black children be very neglected in their health you know, their hygiene mm-hmm. and, and things like that by by white families who just don't know. And and so it's so complicated. And some of it, some of it is parenting. You know, as people start talking about, you know, um, you just got to understand and I get it. But what I will also say is when my children, when my girls specifically were in a home daycare, um, their home daycare provider was a white woman. She also mm-hmm. had black children. I came to pick them up one day and their hair, I was like, girl, what that is good. What product you using, right? <laughs> she taught me how to do my baby's hair. Okay. I'm a black woman, but she had older children, right? And I was still putting them in these little puffs and 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 that was influential for me, right? She had experience and it had nothing to do with the fact that, you know, she was a white woman. She had black children. Mm-hmm. And she had done her hair. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. now I have shifted some of the products I use, but that was my introduction to that. I had a son before I ain't do his hair, right? <laughs> Put a little <laughs> oil in it and, and keep it moving. And so I guess my point is um, sometimes what's happening is just the humanity that raising children requires support, period. And when we skipped, skip that point, and start going into some of these higher level points, I think we miss it, right? Now, there are Mm -hmm. these things. You need to see color. Whatever, whoever is it, we need to see differences in culture and all of that. But we also need to not lose lose sight of the fact that parenting is hard, period. And I've yet to meet anyone who says, no, I've never had any challenges parenting. Mm -hmm." (laughs) They're lying. (laughs) I'm going to straight up say they're lying. I have yet to meet that person. And, and things like that. So I very much, you know, appreciate um, how open you are in regards to getting Ruby the things she needs. I also then say that this is kind of an awareness that you're more aware of this because she is a different race and because you've adopted her. But sometimes I think, man, I wish biological parents would take some of these lessons Mm-hmm. It's not about me. What does my child need? Their needs are different. It doesn't, even if you come from the same bloodline, right? There are still needs that children have that a lot of parents forsake for their own needs. And oftentimes that's because they have unaddressed trauma. But I just think in some regards, this is a parenting discussion that then has all of these extra things with it. So that's just kind of something that stuck out to me. Um, anything else you want us us listeners to know about anything that you can shed light on that, you know, can give us something to think about? I think, you know, for me, the, the my sort of like parting thoughts are like kind of things that I, th- I think of, or, you know, if you are unsure 
of something. And that's something I think I'm, I've learned. And I will say when I'm posting in, whether it's posting in a transracial adoption group or I'm discussing something that I just, especially, you know, and I, I, I don't want to divert too much of course, but uh, around the conversation around race and equality, you know, if you don't know, it's okay to ask. I feel like that is probably the best thing that if, if you see, you know, when I'm going back to the sort of my labor of love, it's like trying to offer a safe space that if you're coming out of something you don't know respectfully and with a willingness to learn or to understand, then I, I, I think that encouraging people to, to ask and to reach out is really something that I think is, is incredibly valuable because when we say, you know, on social media, whatever, we only get more entrenched in our own ideas and people get upset. It's like, if there was this willingness, not only to ask, but to hear somebody when they're saying, I don't know, can you help me? Can you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Um, to me, I think that is something we can do for people, for each other you know, as human beings and give a little grace on both sides. But um, definitely if people are unsure about whether it's adoption, whether it's transracial, you know, I'm just speaking for my sort of topics that I'm addressing today, you know, um, just it's okay to ask, you know, it's okay to say, I don't know. And to, to get to learn, you know, and that is all anybody wants, um, you know, as far as those of us that are in this, sort of community in this, in this situation. Yeah. I love that. And it, it dawned on me that I honestly sometimes think people are, people think they're saying, I don't know when they're giving a counterpoint. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, it dawned upon me when you were talking that some people just don't know how to say, I don't know. And I think we are in a culture, we, we, we are inundated with, you have to know. So I wonder how many times do people throughout their childhood and then as they get older, get to develop the muscle of saying, I genuinely don't know. I know there are a lot of family structures that are mistakenly thinking that age automatically teaches you life lessons. Mm -hmm. Not that you have to learn it, but that you should know. How do we know? Because they say things like, you ought to know better. Shame on you. How old are you? Right. There is this false idea that people get information just because the their ages continue to grow. And so I want to, you know, add to what Anna just said. And if you find that you have not said the words, I don't know, maybe examine that a little bit. There may be shame around not knowing. There just may be a lack of practice or may not feel safe to not know. And, you know, people who genuinely, I think, sometimes want other people's perspective, they don't know how to humbly move into that space without throwing something out and then saying, oh, they'll correct me if I'm wrong. So (laughs) I thought about that. (laughs) Sometimes it literally is okay to just say, I don't know. Can you help me? Um, And I think something else that I just want to say is, um, so I've spent a good deal of my career as a trainer, (coughs) training foster parents and adoptive parents um, or to be adoptive parents and foster parents. And one notion that I think is not unprevalent is this idea that I can just, if I love them enough, right? If, if I just love this child enough. And um, what I found is yes, those children definitely 
need love. Um, however, you cannot love a child enough that they will not be impacted by systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. You can't love them out of systemic oppression. And so there is um, there is a need for activism, whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be prescribed and look a certain way. But as you are, as anyone in community is looking to take care of children in whatever capacity that is, we can provide safety and we can provide love for them, but we still have to address the systemic oppressions that are a threat to their safety on a daily basis and that that is important. So I, I definitely wanted to throw that out there. Um, so Anna, if you have said something that has intrigued someone, they're interested in knowing more, or they're saying, you're right, I don't know. And, and I do want to know, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. So people can feel free to reach out to me. Um, just, yeah. like Just what you said, if there's anything that I can help with or provide insight on, or just, just to um, help with any kind of education piece around adoption, or if you're thinking of adopting, especially transracially um, or in any way, um, feel free to email me if that, that works. Um, my email is Anna and period Heman at gmail.com. Um, it's just my personal email, but I'm happy to um, help or discuss with uh, anybody who might need some support. Yes. So we will have that in the show notes, but just for spelling, it's Anna, A-N-N-A, period, H-E-H-M-A-N at gmail.com. And we will have that in the show notes. So um, Anna, thank you so much. Before I let you go, I would love for you to share with us some interesting, fun, or little known fact about yourself. Oh, that's right. My internet, my little known fact. Um, a little known fact about me is that I actually, I would say I'm conversational, not fully fluent in French. I actually studied French in college and studied abroad. And for a while I was an interpreter for an astrologer when I lived in France. <laughs> so random. Yeah. Very random. Um, it is random, but fascinating. You know, I yeah, nothing, nothing uh, like trying to explain to somebody their, you know, what what their fears are about death in another language. I was like, oh lord, I got to read in someone's <laughs> fortune or palm. What am I doing here? Um, but yeah, so you know, that's my little little weirdness about me. <laughs> I, I love it. That is so interesting. Goodness, <laughs> Thank you. Just my husband's face perked up. Uh, like, hmm, <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> so yeah, it was one of those things where you're like, I guess I might as well just do this. Okay. I guess I'm now interpreting for this person, but yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. <laughs> Um, Well, Anna, I want to thank you so, so very much for uh, being our guest today and for talking to us about, I think this is a very important discussion to have. It's one that at least in the, in the areas and circles that I'm in, that's not often talked about um, and that you could provide so much great insight uh, for those of us who are interested, but maybe not know a lot. And so thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. This has been great. 
Awesome. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in as always. Don't forget, if you would like to reach out to me, you can go to my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel, where every week we put out our Therapy Thursday videos. And of course, don't forget to subscribe, like, rate, review, and share this podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.